Oftentimes, these debates go a theological debate about Scripture, which there's a lot in there to debate and disagree on. But then it comes down to, well, do you send the little boy who died saving his sister to hell? And then somebody says, well, do you send Hitler to heaven? Right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and you you see how both can be how, – how, how futile – the argument is when framed in those two frameworks. Greetings, discerning podcast listener, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen, and I had no idea you were going to say that, but that was an awesome intro. I love it. (laughs) For the discerning, that's our new tagline, No Script, for the discerning podcast listener. (laughs) (laughs) It's like an ad out of the 1970s sometimes. Plucked straight from Mad Men. Oh, uh, we, boy. <laughs> we are talking about a new play this time, as we always do. This is a play by Lucas Nath that uh, I was not necessarily aware of before it was introduced to us by someone. Right, Jacob? Right. No, th- this is another no script episode given to us or suggested to us by one of our listeners. So we are we are always in search of recommendations of scripts to do, and when we get them, we oftentimes try to fit them into our, our normal programming as soon as we can. So we were given this suggestion, and we we're really happy to do it. Uh, before we hop into our episode, we do want to take the moment to ask everybody, if you like this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, if you're part of the No Script Listening community, do take a second and go check out our Patreon. That's a place where you can support the week-to-week work that we're doing to bring you no script. We love doing it. It's a passion project for us, but it is not free. There are costs associated with hosting the podcast, with purchasing the scripts, not to mention all the hours that we put in. So we would love for you to go and consider being a patron over on Patreon. There's lots of levels. They're pretty low dollars amount per month. The lowest, I think, is a dollar a month. And so if you'd consider joining that, there are some perks which you can see over over on Patreon, one of them being that uh, we can say your name in the podcast as one of the people who are helping to produce the show or who are bringing the show to other people. So I hope that you'll go check out that Patreon for us. Yeah, and get some producer cred. Um, the play that we are talking about today is The Christians by Lucas Nath. Nath. There's an H at the beginning there. Um, this play was produced uh, at the Humana Festival for New, New American Plays in Louisville, Kentucky in 2014. Uh, we've done a play from the Humana Festival before. If you, uh, For those of you who have been listening for a while, we did The Roommate uh, the, a while back, a couple months ago. And uh, so the Humana Festival is, is a now oft-used source for our plays. Um, it was then produced off-Broadway in October of 2015 or I'm sorry, closed in October 2015, produced in August, and uh, had another uh, subsequent run in uh, the Steppenwolf Theater in 2016, and then uh, San Francisco as well. So it's it's kind of made the rounds as far as Coast to Coast goes uh, in, the, in the four years since its original writing. Yeah, it was interesting. Jackson and I were talking before we started recording about how both these plays that we have done from the Humana Festival, The Roommate, which was early season one from the Humana Festival, and now The Christians from the Humana Festival, were both subsequently produced at Steppenwolf. So mm-hmm. there's there's sort of a cycle, a churning play cycle here that maybe we'll be able to catch some other ones that follow a similar pattern too. Yes, indeed. Um, 
I think that's kind of, uh, that's it for the context. It won a couple of awards. It won some Drama Desk awards. But uh, yeah, a, a lauded play that has now been produced frequently at some of the largest houses. So synopsis-wise, as you know, we do a short synopsis at the beginning, and then we discuss the play more in depth as we keep going. So the play, it has it has five characters. The, the cast, if you'd call it a cast, is probably much larger because it's five characters, and then there is a large choir. In fact, I think that the description says the larger the better. A large choir, which is involved in the production of the play as well, but five speaking characters and then a singing choir. The characters are all members and staff at a large church, uh, a sort of a grassroots grown up from a storefront church now is a thousands of members kind of a church. The main character, the protagonist perhaps, is Paul, who's just referred to in the script as the pastor. Um, We may talk about why they choose to use titles instead of names, I'm not sure. Um, And then his wife, Elizabeth, and she just is referred to as wife in the script. Associate pastor Joshua, again, just referred to as associate. Then there's an elder named Jay and a congregant named Jenny. Uh, These five people get caught up in a schism that occurs in this church. The opening monologue, which is really a sermon by Pastor Paul, is a a changing of directions for the church that he feels led to provide by God. He says, we are no longer going to be a church that believes in hell. He believes he has received some divine instruction on this and has some biblical backing for it and goes on to say, look, as a congregation, we no longer believe in hell. What follows is sort of the fallout of that decision. His associate pastor has a different viewpoint and leads some of the church away. His wife and he have conflicts because of it. He has conflicts with the board uh, represented by the elder. Um, Some of his congregation members question him represented by that congregant named Jenny. So it's a play that just occurs in the aftermath, really, of a sermon that we get to see given by Paul. Yeah, and occurs in a very kind of public forum within that. The it sound you know just just reading the synopsis as it goes, it kind of sounds like you know a, a story that we maybe have heard before. Someone in the, someone uh, draws away parts of people uh, from a church and starts their own church off on their own. Um, however, at least that initial disagreement that pastor or associate pastor Joshua has happens immediately after the sermon. Um, during the, con- the worship service. <laughs> yeah, during the service. So they have this debate and ensuing vote from the congregation up in front of everyone. It's a very public affair. And at affair. least one other scene that involves two people or more is in a worship service as well. Now, what's interesting about the format and staging and setting, I guess, of the play is that even though some of the other scenes between two characters would in theory, take place in an office or a bedroom, we know at one point between he and his wife, they are also played on a church stage. The setting is a very sort of classic church stage, carpeted, big cross, choir in the back, um, corded mics is what he called for rather than any kind of a hidden mic that actors could use. The playwright says that the actors should carry around corded mics that they use like in a worship service. And so those are the mics that are used to all these characters are always lugging around mics and cords. You can watch a trailer for one of the original productions and see how they use those corded mics on stage. So it's a very public play. Really, even the private scenes are played in this imaginary space 
of the bedroom on the stage of a church. Right. Yeah. 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 The, the only times that I, I, I had to take two read throughs to kind of catch this. I'm glad you brought up the microphones because so many of the scenes you think you're going to be allowed the space to say, oh, well, that happens privately and aside. But most of the time when someone comes up and begins talking, especially to Pastor Paul, um, they grab a microphone from a stand and begin talking. And that kind of forces you to be put into the place of, oh, this is this is not just a personal moment. They're speaking into a microphone and and it, it draws attention to the fact that so much of these types of problems are such a big uh, big problems for everyone and everyone hears about them one way or another. I think the only two scenes that don't uh, specifically have a cue from the script for the character to grab a mic as they enter are the two final ones, um, which we'll get to eventually, but it's a scene between the associate pastor and then a final scene between uh, the pastor, uh, Pastor Paul's wife, Elizabeth. Right. And of course, even if the two characters in a scene, in a given scene, like when Pastor Paul and his wife have a scene in their bedroom, even if they're the only characters in speaking roles in the world of the scene, who else is on the stage during those scenes, Jackson? <laughs> yeah, the choir the is whole on stage. Choir. So here's my question to you, Jackson, to start our conversation. Can you think of another form of theater where the scenes are played between one or two people in front of a large audience and always in semi-public settings? <laughs> I think I can. That would be Greek tragedy. Right. So <laughs> yeah. I'm 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 not thinking of this full cloth. Lucas Nate does an interview where he talks about kind of the Greek tragic origins of this format. But really, this play is a pretty good study in how you could take uh, really all of the elements, or at least a majority of the elements that make up what you imagine as Greek theater, especially Greek tragedy, and turn them into something that works in a modern setting, not just resetting Antigone in 1930 or something, but rewriting a new story with some of those really core elements of Greek tragedy. Boy, that is such, that's such a good point. I didn't think about that when I was reading it. But that's the way they weaponize the audience as well, weaponize the congregation against each other throughout the play is is exactly like Oedipus Rex springs readily to mind in, in those interactions and, and the role that the tragic hero thus goes well, and, on. And the format of the scenes is like exactly Greek theater, right? Because it's one person, they make some sort of a decision, and then one by one, not as a group, there are not scenes. I don't think that there are scenes with more than two characters active in the scenes. A couple of the worship services would have other characters sitting around, but in general, the scenes are between Pastor Paul and the, you know, so you can imagine Pastor Paul is like the Creon character, and then one other person come to challenge them, and that's how the whole play takes place. There's four or five or six or those, or however many. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's exactly Greek theater, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's absolutely. Antigone, yeah. which is what Lucas Nate says is sort of the bones of this play are Antigone. This is hmm. Antigone reborn. Yeah. Yeah, re- yeah, completely reborn with with a really fresh new context, and I think that context is what uh, certainly for me, and I think for a good chunk of people, kind of buries the or or, or uh, obscures some of the ancient tropes of Greek tragedy because it is a very personal play for a lot of people. I think it's a personal play for the playwright as well. But uh, this deals with a, a very very visceral issue and and people trying to use uh, logic and faith. 
uh, in conflict with each other sometimes to defend their different viewpoints. Pastor Paul has this uh, maybe a bit more universal, I wouldn't call it completely universalist, but a, 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 a hellless belief that he has come to uh, believe. And uh, it's brought about by a pretty personal story that he tells about him going to a conference and hearing uh, uh, a story of missionaries at work in another country where a little boy runs into a burning house to save his, or a burning grocery store to save his sister. And he comes out, he rescues her, but he dies as a result of the, of the fire. And the missionary is talking in the context of he wasn't saved. We lost that little boy and just think of all that he could have done. Um, so, we need some support so that our missionary endeavors here can reach more people. And and, uh, and, and I think that that story, it works really well as a sort of, it's an inciting incident to the pastor to decide to do what he's going to do. Maybe he might have some ulterior motive we can talk about as we go. Um, but it, it, in terms of the way that he's presenting his story, you know, he hears that story of this little boy who, in his worldview, because he wasn't a Christian, is going to hell, even though he died, literally burned alive to save his little sister. And he says, that can't be right. And so he begins to reshape this worldview that is one w- without a hell. And then later on, after all the theological arguments, in the next scene, after the sermon, he and his associate pastor Joshua have a fairly lengthy theological debate about the Bible, back and forth about the verses of the Bible, the moments. Pastor Paul makes his point. The associate master or pastor makes some rebuttals. But the, the question that it comes down to, as somebody who's in the faith community and a person of faith and who's involved in these debates all the time, this is so, such an accurate characterization of these debates, right? The theology, yeah. the Bible happens for a while. And then what does Pastor Paul ask Pastor Joshua. What would would you do? (laughs) Would you send that little boy to hell? What would you do? And that is just, I mean, it it hits home. It's like, this is the debate that I have all the time, regardless (laughs) of which side I'm on. And folks who know me know that I'm a little bit of a devil's advocate when I argue. So I don't, I don't often care what side I'm on. I love just to argue. And so I'm on all sides of this debate in the debates and that's how it goes. Eventually Mm -hmm. it comes down to that question, right? Well, would you send that little boy to hell? Mm-hmm. And then the the opposite is true as well. It's funny that you mentioned these kind of conversations. I was thinking before this episode, much of the time or some of the time we have to say at the beginning of the episodes, our perspectives are not necessarily aligned with the characters in them. So this is just our worldview and maybe someone from another one would, would be outside of it. This, this play tends to be in Jacob and I's wheelhouse, I feel like. We're both debating Christians who have been around right. we're, for a we're while. We're actively involved in our faith communities. And so yep. questions like this, plays that like this that I feel like are really fair and really willing to characterize people of faith as earnestly seeking to do the right thing are sometimes rare, Yeah, especially ones that are this well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, I loved that part of it to sort of see something that I could really dig my teeth into <laughs> the the worldview and the you know the connections to my life. Yeah, definitely. So so that so that 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 line of reasoning that maybe a fallacy of the what would you do is traded back and forth. You see it's you see first um it wielded as a weapon by Pastor Paul, but it rears its head again, yeah, a little later on in the script um through the congregant uh, who is Jenny uh, is her name, but again, they use titles to refer to her. So yeah. the script calls her a congregant. Mm-hmm. Yes, but you're right. Her, her name is Jenny, and she 
um, has some misgivings about what has happened. Um, the, the time has passed. Uh, the uh, elder, or I'm sorry, the associate pastor Joshua has, has started his own church and is drawing other people. And she and her uh, boyfriend at the time were having a debate about uh, Pastor Paul and his belief in, in, uh, in no hell and thus a kind of an everyone goes to heaven sort of Definitely, mentality. Yeah, an everyone goes to heaven mentality, right. Yeah, and so she throws the opposite back, which is a, an oft-repeated phrase. If everyone goes to heaven, where is Hitler? And uh, and, and again, I mean, that's just that's so accurate. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you read his preface, at least in the version of the script that I have, Lucas Snay talks about how he he. I mean, he knows the church. He's from the church. I don't know where his current beliefs stand, but he talks about how he you know he was like raised thinking he was going to be a pastor. So he knows what he's talking about, and that's why the play does specificity so well and so accurately. But that's that question is the next question, right? There's oftentimes these debates go a theological debate about script. Sure, which there's a lot in there to debate and disagree on. But then it comes down to, well, do you send the little boy who died saving his sister to hell? And then somebody says, well, do you send Hitler to heaven? Right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and you you see how both can be, how, how, how futile the argument is when framed in those two frames work, frameworks. When, 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 when someone who strongly believes one of them is presented with the other, there's nothing that the other can say <laughs> or th- that they can say about that to to bring about their worldview uh, in a way that is palatable to most people. And, and both of them offer an answer, but the script does a good job making it clear how unsatisfactory the answer is. Because when Pastor Paul says to Associate Pastor Joshua, do you send the little boy to hell? If you were God, do you send him to hell? Pastor Joshua says, uh, yes. <laughs> right. yeah. and, and he tries to stand up for it, but, but, you know, it's framed as this sort of un, well, you really, are you really that cold? Are you, you know, are you really that way? And it, it really frames it as that's, that's a answer that feels wrong. But then mm-hmm. the congregant says to Pastor Paul, do you send Hitler to heaven? And Pastor Paul says, yes. <laughs> and again, right. it's the same feeling of like, that is what I think. <laughs> that's that's in line with what I'm saying, but gosh, that's an uncomfortable feeling. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And and you see both uh, on both occasions, public opinion swings away from either Pastor Paul or Associate Pastor Joshua. Um, Joshua is outvoted. We mentioned the that he right away calls for a vote uh, in front of the thousands of people in the congregation to decide on which way. They, which pastor they agree with, and he loses by thousands of votes. He gets fifty votes, um, and uh, and then later on, that's kind of the the, the, the scene with uh, Jenny as as the uh, the person bringing those questions to Pastor Paul. That's kind of one of the final blows in terms of numbers of people who are coming to this mega church. Right. So, in terms of like the individual plot points. Pastor Paul starts with this sermon where he says, we're no longer going to believe in hell. Associate Pastor Joshua challenges him in that same worship service and then takes about 50 congregants with him to found a new church. Then there's a scene where Pastor Paul and an elder sort of say, the elder says, well, us and the board of directors were behind you. We believe in the direction you're taking your church, but they express some concerns. And then there's a scene. Um, then there's the scene with the congregant where she says, "Look, you know, I'm a member of the congregation. I have some concerns about what's going on. Uh, can you answer? Can you provide some questions?" And there's an interesting question asked there, which we might get to. Um, and and then 
there's then there's then the storyline about Pastor Paul and his wife starts to play out, and it starts to get a little more personal in the home, and that's kind of the wave that is rode until the end of the play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's kind of teed up initially uh, in the in the first sermon. Uh, Pastor Paul mentions this kind of anecdote uh, that he that he's giving about when he met his wife on the airplane, um, and uh, one of the the big kind of lines that he uses to uh, describe their relationship. They're, they're on the airplane and they, he sees her down the aisle and he wonders how he could possibly talk to her. Um, and, he, and he gives the stewardess a note that says, I feel an uncontrollable urge to communicate with you, but I find the distance barrier insurmountable. And it's kind of a, you know, a sweet pastoral anecdote in the middle as he and, connects and, it to the rest of the sermon. And that's a quote from a, a professor from a large university, I forget exactly where, um, of expository writing. So it's a it's a literature quote. Yep, and uh, and so so that's kind of teed up initially, and and it comes up a couple more times. Um, the 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 conversation that he winds up having with his wife again. This is she comes up and grabs the microphone. This is the scene we've been talking about in the bedroom. But she comes up and grabs the microphone, and they're having this conversation. Um, and he's wrestling with more and more people having questions like Jenny. Um, that's how the scene starts is, uh, and he, he winds up asking her, have you heard people asking these questions? And if you have, what have you been telling them? <laughs> um, and which, which starts to kind of press against some of what, uh, his wife's name is Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth is dealing with, which is people keep asking her if she supports these views and ultimately she doesn't. She doesn't. Right. And, and in fact, one of my favorite series of lines is that reveal. She, they're, they're talking about how she should help him field some of these questions early before it gets to the worship services and such and such. Eventually, she says, well, why? Don't you want people who disagree with you to leave? And he says, well, no. And she says, but don't we have, you know, don't we have to prune the tree and use some scripture metaphor? And he says, well, yeah, that's sort of, I mean, sort of. And she says, well, what if I told you that when we took the vote and the congregation had to write down Pastor Paul or Associate Pastor Joshua, what if I told you I wrote down Associate Pastor Joshua? And there's this sort of pause. And he says, is that a rhetorical question? And she says, no. Yeah. I mean, I love that series of lines to lead to that reveal. And what's revealed is that she doesn't agree with him. She thinks that there is a hell, that there, you know, there is some sort of real punishment for people, etc. And that she, not only does she disagree with him, but she's frustrated with him for not consulting her before this happened. Not that he has to consult her about decisions made in the church. He's on staff and she's not. And that's, you know, they exist in a particular worldview of churches, I think. Um, it's kind of hard to know exactly. But at the very least, he's the pastor and she's not. So not not the decision of the business of the church, but that he was personally wrestling with a deeply held faith belief and seemed to her to just sort of change his mind overnight and didn't even let her know that he was wrestling with it. Yeah, and then additionally expected her to support it um, uh, by way of uh, she describes uh, him kind of uh, she accuses him of expecting people to be moved by his magnificence. And she accuses him of especially expecting her to just be moved by his magnificence. And and that that, uh, that kind of addresses the core of we should have talked about this, especially if you want me to try to defend you. 
in this scenario. I, I, I also think it's, it's not drawn much to, but I think that pruning line is such a great line um, because pruning, pruning the church would imply that you think some people aren't doing it well, which ties right back into the argument. Well, which and, is... <laughs> and you, when you prune a bush, you prune dead and diseased branches. So yeah. It's and a harsh way away. to talk about people who disagree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's it's very quick. But this whole play is kind of full of those those lines that are very poignant that's, that that's, that sting and then are, are gone. So I, I really I really like that line in that scene as well. And ultimately what it comes down to in their marriage is this sort of almost to me a kind of hard to grasp convoluted logic on her behalf, which is that because she loves him so much and she wants to spend the rest of their lives together, she thinks that she needs to temporarily, I guess, leave him as a way to make his decision to stay the course harder to do so that ultimately he'll realize the truth that there is a hell and et cetera, et cetera, and come back and they can have a shared belief and have a shared marriage again. Yeah, I think I think fear is something that she brings up a lot. She's, she's afraid that she will uh, kind of confirm in him some of these thoughts that she thinks are not correct and uh, that that confirmation will lead them further down a path that she thinks she she is very of the the persuasion that there is a hell and there's a heaven and that the only way to get to heaven is through uh, belief in Christ and if 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 in fact uh, he is teaching a false teaching he will end up in hell and she will be in heaven and she will be accused by uh, God of not helping him to realize that in life and thus earning his and, and place in hell. And she'd be accused because she stayed with him and made it easy for him to continue down this wrong path. Whereas if right. she left him, she could make him maybe change his mind due to the hardship of being in a potentially a divorce. Right. Yeah, she describes her two options, which are to leave and live with her. Oh, I love the two options scene too. Yeah. It's a great it's a great way of forcing characters to make decisions. So she says, you know, there's really so there, she says, "Oh, we're in all this disagreement and there's now really two options for us. The first option is that I can leave and go to my sister. She said I could come and stay with her." Or I could stay. And you hear, and he says, well, that's the option I'd prefer. And she sort of continues like he sort of interrupted her. And she says, right. and when I stay, I'll have to use my pulp, you know, my, my authority and my uh, trust in the women's circles and in these small groups to start to undo your message, to teach the opposite of what you're teaching and try to get people back on the right path. And you see him and he has to respond. I think that would tear the church apart even more. Yeah. You see him have to undo what he wanted there. Well, I want you to stay. Oh, I, I, he, he's forced <laughs> to say, I don't. Yeah. And, and that's a hard, I mean, it's so hard. It's a hard thing for the character to be forced to do, but it's masterfully done on her part as a, you know, as a real person in the world of the play to pin him into a decision of no, no good answers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no good options. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that that scene in general, there's the, there's there's quite a few moments where she he he continuously kind of interrupts her, and she just continues on and 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 push that 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 scene is one of the instances of that of of like she she's she is pushing for what she will eventually get to say, and and all of his trying to kind of fix the moment 
uh, doesn't doesn't end up working for him. He is he is a uh, kind of a rhetorician. Um, pastor Joshua or associate pastor Joshua seems to be the char- more charismatic of the two. There's a couple lines where people say that he's always involved with the youth and he gets people excited and people invested in the church. But uh, Pastor Paul seems to be this. Um, logician almost, this person who will continue to push for what he wants. Well, um, and, and that's related to their different experiences too. The 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 playwright has crafted for these two men uh, a very different faith story. And honestly, again, this is a really specific and, and beautiful nod to the way that real Christian churches are, which is that there are these group of Christians, uh, I think both of us included, who were raised Christian who were, you know, raised as part of the church, have been for a long time, and and, and that's part of our experience. And then there's this group of uh, some some denominations would call them born-again Christians. That's not the language that I particularly use, but it's a good way to describe it, where there are people who were not Christians because of their life experience. They weren't born to Christian families, etc., whatever. Uh, and then they find Christianity as an adult. And so you have Pastor Paul, who's had a lifetime of of understanding of the way that Christians talk and the way to use Christian logic and Christian rhetoric, and also a lifetime to sort of settle in. Whereas you have Pastor Joshua, who's sort of new to the game. Right, and kind full of scrappy. Of, full of energy about it, but doesn't quite have the comfortability or the um, the, the mastery of the jargon. Yeah, absolutely. And and both of them wind up hitting blind spots with it. Um uh Pastor Paul rests in that jargon and I think the blind spot that uh Pastor Joshua didn't realize was how much authority it gives him. Um and and I think Joshua saw that initial meeting going or that initial service going completely differently. I think he thought he was going to walk out with most of the people and he only got 50. So and that that's what Pastor Paul rests in, but then Paul has this blind spot of he he actually says that it's a blind spot. He can't uh, later in the in the scene with Jenny, the congregant. She talks about a heaven with Hitler in it, and it's something that she can't imagine. And if she can't imagine it, it scares her. And so, thus, that's not the way heaven could be for her because she can't imagine it. And he actually feels like he actually kind of breaks down all of his guards, whatever his guards are, and says, "Why." <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't, he sort don't of take this admits <laughs> that there's a distance, an insurmountable distance, right? That's that quote yeah. used over and over. This mm-hmm. insurmountable distance between he and even the members of his congregation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he can't he can't comprehend why that would be scary to her. Um, he he says it, 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 it that would be boring to me. How could it not be boring to you? If you can imagine heaven, that's kind of dull, isn't it? I want heaven to be this other thing, this unimaginable thing. And that winds up kind of being the point where he starts having a lot of silence after Jenny's line. The play uses silence pretty brilliantly and specifically in the writing of it with uh, ellipses put in for for the characters to take silence. Right, and, and, he has and a it's lot as it. a character's line. So you'll yeah. see a character will say something and there'll be the character's name and then the, the sentence and then the next character's name and the only line is in ellipse. And it's, I guess, sort of supposed to signify a pause. It's hard to know whether it's like he intends there to be some sort of a weighted pause where something is communicated in the ellipse or if he just means it as the same as the word pause. A little bit hard to know. You'd have to decide as a production team. But on the page, I think it's really effective. Yeah, absolutely. 
As long as we're on the page at this moment, let's talk about the the formatting of the script. And I don't have a real clean answer for this at all. Wow, <laughs> um, the formatting. Um, Jackson, is your do you have the yellow script? Is that the yeah, one you yep. have? Yeah, that's the one that I have too. So I don't know. There might be other editions floating out. Uh, the last Humana Festival play I read, I got in a Humana Festival anthology, so that you might have then access to the Christians in a Humana Festival anthology if that's where you found it. I don't know what your formatting looks like, but Jackson and I's scripts are formatted see if you agree with me jackson they're formatted like a slam poem absolutely yeah like it's so visual that it's almost like the play is intended to be read Mm -hmm. i mean you know we live in this world of doing a podcast about dramatic literature because we love reading plays but plays are you know they're a performative text at their core, right? So to put a bunch of thought and work into the visual alignment of the way that words appear together on the page suggests some focus on the reader's experience or the alternative is that there's an intent to communicate something to the actor and to the production team by the way these words are aligned. So see if you can help describe what I'm rambling about. Yeah, yeah. So... so, uh it's it's as if uh, kind of each paragraph got uh, separated very intentionally, but by left, middle, and then right indenting <laughs> or or alignment along the page. Um, you you kind of travel, especially in the sermons and especially in the instances where people are up are up in front of the congregation. You travel all over the page, left to right. Most lines have you know only a couple words in it. This play is. Uh, the, this edition of the play is around 90-ish pages, and it takes you less than an hour to read. Um, or at least I would it took think me less, less than an, than an hour, hour to play, too, even with the music. I have to yeah. imagine this feels more like a long one act, although I've never seen it. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I tend to agree with you that you kind of shape your way through the page, and it makes uh, makes you as the both as the, so it makes you as the reader have an experience of this kind of. Um, rhythm of the pastoral voice especially in those sermon scenes where it feels like it felt like to me i was you know listening to someone kind of roll along in a in, in a sermon um but i think it also encourages the actor to not allow this to be a typical theater monologue i think he has his the pastoral voice in this is very clear and it's only amplified by the uh, kind of slam poetry style uh formatting for yeah the you can imagine if you've read a, a slam poem or really even a lot of poetry written in the past 20 years for our poet listeners. I'm sure that I was not correct about that, but that's what I'm thinking in my head, that (laughs) that a lot of modern poetry uses uh, typeface and justification and indenting to communicate something about how the words connect to each other. And so this script does that too. Let me try to give you an example, and then I'll say how I think that this might be used as communication to the actor. So this is the scene, the first scene between, again, the characters' titles are just pastor and wife. We know that it's Paul and Elizabeth. A pastor asks uh, a series of questions of his wife, all left justified. Then the wife responds with one word that is indented in one indent. 
So it's left. You can't see the gestures that I'm making, but Jackson can. <laughs> left justified, and then an indented answer, and then a right justified response from the pastor, and then it all resets back to less left justified, and then it follows that same pattern actually for a couple of lines. The 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 initial left justified, and then maybe a center justified or an indent in, and then a right justified. So on the page, it sort of looks like a series of slants with the lines going that way. Now on the page, that's really interesting, and it draws your eye from piece to piece as you follow it sort of downwards. As a way to communicate to the actor, I actually think that's really effective. One of the things that as a director, I know that I'm always trying to get my actors to do is try to connect their lines to the previous line a little bit more. Uh, Rather than think of each line as a new thing that a character's saying, think of them in context of the rhythm of the conversation and try to cut down the space between lines, pick up your cues, etc., theater jargon. Um, but, But as a way to communicate to the actors that this set of lines are all part of the same thought and should continue together... That really works, I think. And then the playwright says, when we move back to being left justified again, that's sort of a reset. There's either a new thing or maybe there's a breath taken to sort of set a new downward spiral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's, an, it's an oblique way to bring that about, which I really appreciate because I think over um, uh, over describing how an actor should use things uh, or say things by the playwright can be a bit um, intrusive at times. But I think this encourages you to use your mind to uh, to grapple with the text and and bring something about. I absolutely I love what you were saying about the, that kind of rhythm down and down, especially in that scene where it's kind of especially initially they're both kind of pulling at each other with their different viewpoints and trying to figure out what the other one actually believes and then and being I will surprised. say some of it works really well some of it seems really random to me right and I yeah. have a hard time understanding what he's trying to communicate <laughs> actually on the next page if if you have your script out which is really cool do you have your script out while you're listening to this <laughs> look That's at awesome. you you probably don't because you're probably running or driving or something which is also <laughs> great but if you go back and find your script also on page 73 the pastor says a line that's left justified and then like a whole the whole rest of the page is like center justified and i I have no idea what he's trying to say (laughs) to the actors in that case i think it just looks cool right i I don't know what the communicative element of it is right right (laughs) so let's continue on this path of what's in there and and talk about what i've been asking this whole conversation why would we not use the characters names in writing the script. Now, this is this is this conversation is about to be something that probably only applies to the reading experience because if you're watching the play, you don't have the characters' titles before they say a line. Right. But in the script, they do, and the titles are not the names. It says pastor, associate, wife, elder, congregant, rather than the names of these characters, and they're not unnamed characters. No. Because that yeah. could be something that they had done. Taylor could have written uh, unnamed characters. Yeah, like the characters could be just calling them pastor, pastor. or something like that. But, but that's they're not. not they're what using happens, their names. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great I mean that that that's something given given what we know that it is just in the play, that's something that I feel like is directed at the the reader and the production team. Um, so, so you have to kind of approach it from the position of, okay, since they're the only people who see it, what is the production team supposed to infer from it? Um, and then you look at the rest of the play and I think what the rest of the play is kind of feeding into is this, um, this 
almost deification of Pastor Paul and this dehumanization of of people who stand up there um, and and are and are in that because uh, he has these these this moment with Jenny is the one that kind of feeds into this where he as a result of her questioning him about Hitler he's kind of backed into this corner of um, she asks him how do you how do you um, how do you pick which things I should hear at which times and how uh, kind of kind of voicing it in a uh, how dare you how dare you withhold information from me if you were thinking about that there is no if you were thinking that there is no hell why didn't you tell us sooner um and he's trying to defend that and she says how dare you hold decide what i should hear but that's what the congregation was asking of the pastor to be this kind of deity who with who gives them information um and i think that that definitely feeds into why uh it's 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 not a human name as their character title. It's the position and the the prestige that comes with that position that defines them. Right, and 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 there's some statement being made here about how the characters, because of the sort of rigid confines of the positions that they're in, sort of lose the ability to be people. Right, because if Paul were just a person and he was just called Paul, he could think all he wants about whether or not there's a hell. But because he's a pastor, having those thoughts and believing that way requires him to lead his church and what he feels God is asking him to do. And so there's a lot larger implications. You know, you think back to the sort of Greek connections we've been making, Creon and Antigone. If Creon were just some dude who didn't think that it's right for the princes to be buried because, you know, they were traitors or whatever, um, you know, he's just some dude. It's cool. But because he's the king, he has the power and the responsibility to do what he thinks is right. And so he sort of has to steer the ship, right? That's a metaphor used in Antigone a lot. And Mm -hmm. so the pastor in this, because he's pastor and not Paul, has the responsibility to steer the ship. And so the human elements of what he's going through have larger implications. Which is the same with Joshua as well. He's also in that same position of there. there there's one uh, kind of telling scene for Joshua that that makes you um, kind of consider some of his beliefs uh, as well as his personal story. We might get to that eventually. But there's a scene where it's the first scene during the sermon, and the stage direction says something like, "He takes a second and seems to actually check to see what God is telling him to do, and then he proceeds with." I think we're going to. If I leave, I'm going. I could bring a lot of people with me, um, and he he continues to oppose it. So I think that 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 uh, that belief and the prerogative to act on that belief is is a huge part of it, and 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 why this conflict happened at all. Right, and the other characters are sort of in the same boat, right? Each of them, because of the the title, the titular connection that they have to the other characters in the play, right? Jenny is not just a person who ha- who's interested in this debate, and so is Paul. She's a congregant to Paul's pastor. Yeah. So there become, there's a power imbalance. There's um, a, a way that those characters have to relate to each other that is formalized, that is different than just two humans talking. 
Mm-hmm. It's almost really the way that the 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 play script uses the titles of characters instead of names is almost the same sort of idea as using the church stage as the set rather than the individual places. It formalizes the relationships and what occurs inside of it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. The and that includes uh the the conversation with the elder as well. Super Super formal, they're friends, but not really. And and yeah, I, I absolutely and, and, and agree. And the same thing with he and his wife, right? Because this, you'd think that if there were one scene in the whole stinking play yeah. where they could maybe shed some of this a little bit, have a private moment, have something that's just between a married couple. This is just husband and wife in their bedroom thinking through the problems that they're facing. But even then, they can't escape it. The scene right. is played in front of the whole, you know, it's on the church stage. They're sitting in church stools pretending to be a bedroom and the titles are still pastor and wife because even in the context of their marriage, they can't escape these roles. It's not just Mm -hmm. that they're a married couple who disagree on this issue. It's because they're the pastor and the pastor's wife. She feels like if you continue down this road, you're going to go to hell because you're shepherding people in an evil direction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so there's – we, we've talked quite a bit about the Greek tragedy connections uh, throughout this, and 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 I think there's a lot of of through lines with it. Uh, I think there's there's another one though, which is the tragic flaw, um, and and we've we've kind of talked about we've we've in passing thrown a couple comments towards what might be some of Paul's uh, tragic flaws. If Paul is in fact the tragic hero of this play, I'm of the opinion that he is. Yeah, I, um, I don't think there's any question about that for sure. Yeah. Yep. But what, what do you think could be uh, some of the moments where we discover some of what uh, his flaw is? Or is there even more than one? <laughs> it, it, look, this is tough because let me take it this way. Associate Pastor Joshua in the second of their confrontation scenes um, asks Paul – basically accuses Paul of of his faith being easy. It's He sort of says, look, it's easy not to believe in hell. It's difficult to believe in hell. And he tells this really touching story about watching his mom die, who was a non-believer, and the pain that it causes him to think that she's suffering. And, and, he, and he says, look, that's a, that's a tough thing. I want to not believe in hell. Help me not believe in hell. That's the easier road. I want that road. And I think that a lot of people might feel that way, that, that there, there's a sort of ease in this, in this belief that everybody goes to heaven. And I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong. That's for your own minds. I'm just saying that I think that probably the audience is inclined to be on Pastor Paul's side. He's, he's, he's asking for a more universal uh, salvation, right? Something that a, a lot of people believe is, is, that's really enticing, as opposed to like the Greek tragedy where Creon's position in Antigone is one that I think a lot of people immediately disagree with. And he's sort of immediately framed as the bad guy, quote unquote. In this play, I think Paul is sort of framed as the good guy right away. And we spend the rest of the play picking at what's going on. And so for me, I think there are two really crucial moments where we get a glimpse at what else might be going on with Paul. The first of them occurs when the congregant comes on stage, Jenny comes on stage, and in the course of their conversation about her concerns, she says in front of the whole congregation, and Jackson alluded to this earlier, why did you wait until the church had paid its debt 
to reveal that you don't believe in hell and and we're going to lose some of our members as a result. The opening sermon that he reveals all this in, he says, the church has just freed itself from debt. We paid off our building. Hallelujah. Now that we've paid off our building, we're going to go in this new direction as a congregation. And it feels, I don't know, a lot of the congregation immediately feels like it's exciting. But Jenny comes on stage and asks, did you wait to say that knowing that it would drive people away because you needed our money to pay off the church? And that question is asked to Pastor Paul, and he does not give a satisfying response by any means. He flips and flops all over. He says things like, well, I tried to do what's best for the church. I mean, just vague stuff like that. So there's one right there, right, which might allude to something going on. The second one is in the bedroom scene with his wife, where she, and you said this line, she says, I think you thought that we were all just going to be swept up in your magnificence. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that kind of uh, uh, kind of hubris, maybe, but not quite. I don't think hubris is is necessarily his flaw, but that that belief that he can sway people by his own innate ness um, <laughs> of of his ability to kind of push on them in that scene. I think, yeah, I think those are definitely two of them. I would add a third, and it's back in the uh, scene with Elder J. Um, which we, we haven't spent too much time talking about. This is kind of a scene where El- Elder Jay comes from the board and is uh, talking to to folks uh, or talking talking about what folks are thinking of Pastor Paul's sermon and and responding to it and saying mostly that he's they're behind him, but the biggest thing they're not behind him on is uh, how he basically fired Associate Pastor Joshua right away. And there's a kind of a a telling line uh, where he talks about some of the conflict that he uh, that where Paul talks about some of the conflict that he and Joshua had and how unaligned they were, and uh, he's talking about some of uh, the work that Joshua was doing, and he talks about a time when he took some college kids down to uh, the streets and kind of just told soapboxed basically and told people they were sinners and uh, that they needed saving. And uh, he mentions the, 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 the problem of the world looking back at the church and, and kind of saying, why would you do that to people? Why would you make them feel unwelcome in that way? But then he switches it and says, the world looks at me and asks that question. And I think that is also part of his, it's tied back into that magnificence line. I think he kind of subtly is taking on this this uh, deified position of I am the church in this scenario. I am able to, or I am both able to take on some of the blame, but also he started feeling resentful for all the blame that he was being given by what Joshua was doing. Um, when people looked at Joshua's work and asked why would the church uh, just kind of drop into these people's lives and tell them that they're sinners, they asked him those questions. And uh, so I, I think that's the other kind of facet that he maybe wanted Joshua gone a little more than he would have said to his face. 
Um, in, and they, in the, they discussed that a couple more times throughout the play. When Joshua yeah. was brought up, actually, with the elder and then again with his wife, this the conversation is sort of, well, you know, Josh was never really on board with the way that we were trying to lead this church. He was always preaching something different than we were. It was a pro- I think at one point they say it was a problem that needed fixing. Right. So there's this sense of like the firing of Joshua you learn later was maybe inevitable. And right, not, yeah. And not totally connected. It just mm-hmm. sort of conveniently happened at that time. Right. Another thing that Pastor Paul does, which is interesting, is – you know, for somebody who is asking people to think more um, non-conventionally about the scripture and ask more more questions, sort of, he also in, sort of encourages people not to ask questions. All right. First of all, I mean, he <laughs> yeah. asks his wife to sort of field the questions for him so he doesn't have to deal with them to right. some degree. But then again, in the scene with Jenny, there's this moment where he's sort of like. Just take a moment and think about it and pray about it. You'll agree with me. You'll see that I'm right as we go. And then the final line of the play, which I find just such a <laughs> yeah. such an interesting end. The, the ending scene of the play is the wife coming to him, basically about to leave him. She's got her bag packed and everything, and he's asking her to stay. And, and it's revealed all the stuff that has happened to him recently is revealed, including that they might be losing the church, that the membership is down, etc., But the ending line of the play is that she says, you know, we might not be together forever. Uh, And he says, we should spend this time together, et cetera. They have a little discussion. And then he says, uh, and I'll quote this, don't worry about trying to figure it out now. It will make more sense later. So there's there's this other sense of Pastor Paul of not wanting his congregants to question and even his wife to question. I think that he gets blindsided when his wife says, not only do I not agree with you, but I can't believe you didn't ask me about it. Right. You didn't talk to me about it. I think to him, that probably didn't ever occur to him. Yeah. <laughs> he sort of, he thinks that like he's, she's, you know, accuses him. He thinks of his own magnificence as a sort of wash agreement over the bulk of the people. Yeah, and that that is enough, it sh- or it should be enough for everyone. That if if he believes it, why shouldn't they? I think that again, to just to reiterate, I think that's the same the same reason why he can't see Jenny's uh, point of view as something of of uh, a value or enough to like uh, to scare him as well of that unimaginable space. Uh, I, I I absolutely agree that he he kind of sees himself around the, as the fulcrum around which the church turns. To, and, to bring back my earlier point, just so I, and this is what he says to Jenny when she's bringing up all of his, all the problems she has with his way of thinking and these questions about the timing of what he did. This is what he says to her. My advice to you is to be patient, to sit with it, to pray, to have an open heart and the understanding will come. Yeah. A very a very similar sentiment. This idea that you don't have to agree with me now, but just trust me, you'll get there later. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is the fear of of his wife Elizabeth as well. She talks about this fear that in 2 years if she stays, she'll believe him. <laughs> Like it's not, it's she'll, she'll believe what he says and she'll look back at herself now in, in what is a very convoluted piece of writing. But if you take the time to pick it apart, it's, it's brilliant. Um, she says that in, in the future, she might look at herself 
in the past and say how silly she is in the past, but right now, in the present, which was the past in that previous scenario, she's looking at the future self and feeling scared of those beliefs and how wrong they could be. So it's this, and it's this just impressive knot that I feel, again, is a familiar knot for some people, especially in this this fear of leaving something undone that uh, happens a lot in churches. Um, they, they they think about this knot, and it, and it winds up being this 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 horrible mess that she gets herself into but that is the same thing she is uh, afraid of his ability to kind of pause things and then continue uh kind of drilling in the point and and eventually persuading people so do you think that he's sincere do you think that pastor paul sincerely believes this or is this um is this sort of the forefront to him or or not the forefront? Is this the face mask to a, a more a nefarious subconscious set of motivations? Hmm. I think I will answer that dramatically um, <laughs> <laughs> um, within the context of dramatic, uh, the dramatic literature um, and uh, say that I think all of these characters believe 100% in what they in what they are supporting. I don't think uh, that the the uh, the idea is to figure out which one of them has this horrible ulterior motive or which of them is a Pied Piper or which one is right even. I don't know exactly that this play is is pushing for one side to win or not. I think rather these are five people who all believe really strongly, strong enough to do something that is damaging to their world and the people around them. So much so that they're willing to just kind of form a schism in a church and rend relationships and get up in front of people and accuse the person of power um, of being wrong when you're just a congregant. Um, so I, I think that's, that is what, what most of this play is about. And I don't think Pastor Paul is the exception. I think he really believes it. And maybe he had some nefariousness in his timing, but I think nevertheless, he, 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 was doing it out of a desire to tell truth, a truth that he believed. Yeah, I, I think I don't disagree with you, but I also think that the play is making some commentary about how even earnest belief is caught up in the other things that go on in our life. Because like we said, Pastor Paul exists in this world of feeling like he's personally being blamed for the negative things that Christians do in the name of hell, you know, in the name of people being sent to hell. And so it's possible that that earnest belief also comes out of that more, you know, shame-ridden place, the, that more darker place. In the same way, Pastor Joshua, while it seems like he 100% earnestly believes in hell, think about also the personal cost of realizing that he was wrong and, and and all the things that he did to people, that the people he told they were going to hell to realize, I mean, there's a lot of personal cost in this play of admitting that you're wrong. And so I think instead people re-entrench themselves in these sort of 100% beliefs. And part of what the play says is even if you earnestly believe, even if you believe what you believe, the best version of it, you're really for it. This is what you think God is asking you to do. It's very difficult to separate that out from the other personal, more selfish motivations that might be going on in your life. Right. And then especially try to translate that into living with other people. 
right. and, and your relationship with them. Well, well I, 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 let me just say one final thing, Jackson, is that I love the way that these characters, especially the three uh, Associate Pastor Joshua and the wife and the pastor are named. I love their names. All three of them have biblical names, <laughs> um, Paul, Joshua, and Elizabeth. And, and I find the connections to those biblical characters just awesome. Yeah. Paul is, right, the pastor who's bringing this sort of brand new way of thinking about the world and, and, and hell to his congregation. And of course, the biblical Paul is also the person who says Gentiles should be able to receive salvation, which blew the mind <laughs> of this Jewish, you know, group of Jewish Christians at the time. And Joshua, the sort of young firebrand of a leader under Moses, there's some connection there. And Elizabeth talking about the sort of patient waiting that she's going to have to do for her husband in the same way that Elizabeth in the Bible has to experience this sort of patient waiting for her family to grow. I mean, I think that the uh, even in just the names of the characters, Lucas Nath really reveals a sort of deep steeping in Christendom that allows him to be really specific and really poignant in his portrayal of Christian people. Definitely. It resonates very personally. If you have experience with being in a church and being in a mega church or just being attached to that world at all, there will be things that resonate with you in this in this play. Um if, if things did resonate with you and you wanted to uh, kind of talk about them with someone who has read the play, hey, we read the play. Um, if, so uh, if you had the chance, uh, get on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and and let us know. Uh, we'd love to continue the conversation with you. We also have email, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to talk about this play more. I'd love to see that. I'd love to do this play. This oh, play, man, I want to do this play so bad. Yeah, absolutely. I think it drops into many different... Uh, 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 demographics and places and times. I think it is a pretty, pretty accessible message, which it can talk about. So if you have uh, stories about this play, we'd love to hear them. And you can find our podcast at Podbean, which is where the podcast is hosted. We are also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. One of the easiest ways to find the podcast is just on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where a link to the episode is posted every Monday when we release. If you liked this episode, if you've liked our other episodes, please go to Patreon and support us there. But the other way that you can support us is by sharing the episode and telling people about it. We have been really blessed by the the, the listenership of this podcast growing episode to episode. We love that the, the family, the, the listenership, the conversations continue to grow. So if you can help continue that and, and tell people who like scripts, I know that you know some because you like scripts. <laughs> tell them about us. Continue to grow this uh, this conversation. Also, we are very excited for another themed month that we are doing next month. So in March, we're going to be, drumroll please, doing Miller Month. <laughs> Miller Month. Yeah. If you have, if, if you're a person of the dramatic literature world and you are like, man, you're into season two and you haven't done an Arthur Miller play? <laughs> 
this this month is for you. We've been waiting. We've had some Arthur Miller plays that we've thought about doing, but like we did musical month in season one, we have kind of thought that the the month that we want to do for season two is a series of four Arthur Miller plays. So the plays that we are going to do are, and I, we don't know the order yet, so don't don't be stingy about me on the order here, okay? I'm just going to say the four plays. We'll decide the order in a minute. Right. Uh, the plays we're going to do are The Crucible, A View from the Bridge, uh, The Death of a Salesman, obviously, and All My Sons. So we will do those four plays in some order, and we're really excited about it. Musical Month was obviously a blast, so I hope that you'll tune in in March for Miller Month. Yes, indeed. So uh, until next week, when we'll do another play and get to talk with you all about it, I'm Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script the Podcast. We will see you next week. See ya. See ya.